0: Welcome back to part two of our Tech Law podcast series, looking at the capital markets landscape for African tech. My name is Trudy Wamala Karabhava, and I'm a partner in DLA Piper Africa's Uganda office, where I head the corporate practice. I'm joined again by Gokul Mani, head of primary markets, Middle East, Africa and India for the London Stock Exchange Group. Welcome back, Gokul.
1: Thank you very much, Trudy. Delighted to be here
0: goku in our first discussion we explored the global capital markets landscape and how that is translating into africa tech we spoke about the attractiveness of london as a listing destination and looked at the continued importance of private sector capital in the form of vc private equity and m a and finally we touched on some of the changes that the lse has made to the uk listing regime. To make it more suitable for technology companies, such as the reduction in the minimum float requirement from 25% to 10%, and the permitting of companies on the premium segment to issue in dual class share format. In this segment, I want to take our discussion back to capital markets on the continent somewhat. And I'm going to come back to regulation and the free float requirements in this regard in a bit. But first, I want to start by looking at some of the challenges around IPOs for African tech companies and what they can do post IPO to ensure success. An important thing that you and I discussed in the first segment about African tech is that we are in a growth phase where most of Africa tech is very, not just nimble, but running a very small tight operation. But when it comes to listing and what happens after listing, that's a burden. At our firm in Uganda, we spend a lot of time with clients talking about what happens post-listing, the listing requirements, compliance with listing requirements, disclosure and reporting, AGMs. If you place that in the African tech context, an entrepreneur started with an idea and all of a sudden they have to deal with disclosures and cautionaries and all those kinds of things. I wanted to ask you about the support that the LSE provides in that regard. And feel free to also talk about pre-IPO support, but crucially, how do you facilitate, if you like, a positive post-listing life for an
1: issue? Sure, Trudy. Some very um, you know pertinent and important points you've uh, you've you've mentioned uh, there, right? Which is uh, and worth exploring a bit more uh, more in detail. I think this goes back to our previous uh, you know discussion around. Uh, when will we get more African tech companies and, um, and um, the inflection point between private and VC and going public. And I think you've hit the nail on the head that, that, you know, the, the going public exercise as well as the staying public and staying uh, a successful enterprise uh, post IPO is quite a lot of work. It does have demands on management teams and founders, and therefore, um, you know, for those early stage younger tech companies, private VC capital is probably the more sustainable way to grow for now. As these companies grow bigger and their capital requirements get larger or they wish to expand into certain geographies that a public listing would allow them to, that's when I think it reverses when the burden or the costs of going public or staying public Actually, um, are are lower than the the advantages of of going public. You know, a company from an international market, whether it's you know any of the three markets that I closely look at—Africa, Middle East, or India—a company from any of these markets, I feel sometimes post IPO, post going public, is going to do is going to have to do more from an investor relations and investor interaction perspective than a company from a more traditional developed market. Um, Because there's a certain level of education that they may have to do uh, around some of the specificities of the countries in which they operate. And then the news flow um, in some of these companies is not there, but I think the IR function needs to ensure and be present and and, be very visible in front of that investor community or the research analyst community just so that liquidity in that stock builds. So uh, I know your question dealt with a lot of the listing requirements and reporting and disclosure attributes, but investor relations and that non-deal roadshow and constant investor and research analyst engagement is actually, in my mind, equally important just to build success and build liquidity in that market. And what, what that will also do is it will fuel further listings from the continent because the first few tech IPOs are going to have to be successful ones that that you know lead to investors and asset managers making money uh, and and earning returns and that's that's the manner in which more investors will back uh, new growth stories. What do we do and what can we do uh, specifically post iPO um, is um, you know we have a very large digital products franchise which is encapsulated in our issuer services offering. This is a uh, marketplace where companies can host their investor presentations, their capital market days, their non-deal roadshows. So it is one, a communications device to investors, which they can use. It's also, uh, issuer services is also where these companies that are listed on London Stock Exchange have their dedicated profile page and we have two million unique visitors per month uh, on an aggregate basis visiting these profile pages. In addition, we also have a suite of uh, services that companies that listed companies require that are available to companies that are listed on our market. I'll, I'll take an example. We, um, we have investor relation, we have companies that specialize in, in investor access and investor relations. And those companies are part of our marketplace companies and newly listed companies can approach those and you know um, come together and 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 get help with regards to some of that investor engagement post-ipo i was i was referring to on your question on pre-ipo readiness um and and what do we do there we do different uh, i guess we do different um, levels of engagement depending on what that company needs in some situations, the company is well advised with legal firms, accounting firms, financial advisors and investment banks. They know what they're doing, they've chosen their venue, they have an execution process and they're positioning the company to do so. In other cases, it's much more early stage than that and the company itself does not have a firm view around timing, around which venue, whether to stay private or go public. And, and those are the more interesting discussions for us to have on, on really advising them on how to plan their funding continuum or their equity financing journey uh, thereafter.
0: Okay. Um, I, I really like the sort of the ecosystem, the pre-IPO readiness right through um, to the post-listing uh, support. And I think one of the critical areas you've mentioned is because most of our markets, are nascent markets, success stories are really critical. Just to share with you a story. So when we, on Monday, uh, MTN Uganda listed, and uh, so we had this big venue, a tent and everything, and a giant screen. Uh, And so trading Mm -hmm. on that day for our local uh, stock exchange happened, you know, there were about 200 guests or something, and everyone was watching the screen to see Mm -hmm. how this new uh, counter was performing. And imagine the pressure, you know, I was just looking at all the stakeholders within the issue are just saying, let's hope the price does not drop to to anything. We we can't have an outing uh, that's not successful. So I think the point you make about success stories is really, really critical. Um, It cannot be that we sort of say this is how Africa is and, you know, we're slow to come to the party and whatever. What can issuers do to really build up that activity? And I think that's a key takeaway uh, for for issuers in the tech space. There's work to be done to keep the public, the investing public, interested in the counter, interested in what's happening and invested uh, in what's going on. And related to that, I think you touched on on the point. When I hear all the things that you're doing, um, I wonder how you are supporting, uh, if you are, uh capital markets, you know, regulators, stock exchanges on the continent, um, you know, what kind of engagement do you have with them? Uh, whether it's regulation or whatever, you you mm-hmm. will go into that. Um, I mean, apart from dual listings, you know, where you say, for example, Airtel list in Nigeria, list in London, yeah. how else do you partner with stock exchanges and even regulators in Africa? Uh, to make sure that we get uh most of the things if not all of the things right
1: yeah absolutely so um you know what do we do in that regard at a at a country level or um, or actually at a at a stock exchange and regulator level you know broadly speaking trudy there are there are three uh kind of discrete um kind of segments that this falls into. And currently we've got arrangements with nine countries in Africa, and we'll talk about what those nine countries are and what we do. But those three sort of segments fall into, as you've alluded to, it's uh, one is around the dual listing capabilities, the fungibility of securities, the connectivity of the post-trade systems so that the securities Um, you know clear and there's an order entry book etc so that's kind of broadly speaking around the dual listing framework which also has a regulatory uh, uh, play to it second is around our uh, uh, you know FTSE indices and benchmarks business which is in the business of uh, country classification works in many countries in Africa and that leads to passive demand flowing in to the continent Uh, but Away from, so, so there's a country classification piece that FTSE do and then there's also a calculation piece that FTSE do on behalf of some of the the, the African stock exchanges. The third is around data and analytics. We, we take feeds uh, of all the prices from the various stock exchanges on the continent and supply it uh, to our own data provision company as well as to the other global data providers. And the fourth, I actually said there were three, but there are actually four. And the fourth is our technology business, where we provide the trading market surveillance and resilience platforms and and pure software to African exchanges. Now, um, the pure dual listing piece, which was the first piece is, uh, is, uh, is something we do primarily in Nigeria, in South Africa and in Kenya. And uh, to your point on Airtel Africa, which is Nigeria, we've got a, a framework which allows London listed companies to simultaneously or thereafter dual list in Nigeria and have a post trade uh, mechanism for settlement. Uh, we also have the ability to do it the other way around, like SEPLAT, which began life in Nigeria and dual listed in London. So both ways work. In South Africa, it's a slightly different mechanism. Um, and it's it's a it's a, it's a more historic mechanism where a premium listed company once it lists on London, automatically admits if they so desire on the South African market because of that inward passporting in in that regime. Kenya is a similar example as Nigeria where we've got the MOU with the Nairobi Stock Exchange in total, the nine countries uh, where we've got these uh, these relationships are uh, of course we've talked about Nigeria and South Africa and Kenya but away from that it's Ghana, Malawi, Namibia, Morocco, Mauritius and Botswana where whether it's FTSE or our data business or our technology business where we're playing a part over there.
0: Okay. So after this conversation we'll be talking about Uganda, Goko.
1: Yes. So that I know that um, there's
0: been at the end of it all I've got something from you from from this
1: conversation. I was gonna say actually, Trudy, we probably do uh do have some companies from Uganda, and I'll I'll mention it in the context of uh, our companies to inspire report. You know, this is a report. It's a showcasing that we've been doing now for several years. The last main iteration of companies to inspire Africa was in two thousand and nineteen. When we showcased 360 high-growth companies from 32 countries in Africa, and then in the year 2020, PwC did a one-year on to that piece, whereby they provide an update to companies that have done, you know, uh, private deals, MA, or any joint ventures. And um, you know, Uganda features pretty highly in our Companies to Inspire Africa report. In other aspects, in terms of what we do in Africa, we've got a London Stock Exchange Africa Advisory Group or LAG. Um, we have, it's uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, we meet uh, on a biannual basis, the next meeting is in fact tomorrow. Um, and over there, you know, there's, there's a lot of thought leadership amongst policymakers, business folks uh, and government uh, around various, uh, you know, development attributes uh, from an Africa perspective. The theme for tomorrow's meeting is in fact around sustainability and ESG.
0: Okay, sounds good. Um, so as, as we wind up, um, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points. Uh, one is policy um, and regulation. You've given us uh, what's happened from your context in terms of how the listing framework has changed in a fundamental way. I think the free float brought down to 10%. That really is an incentive, but also dual class shares and I'm sure other things that are going to follow from that. From a policy perspective within the continent, we're seeing a lot of uh, localization uh, initiatives. In Uganda, as an example, as part of our new licensing framework for communications, we have a public listing obligation um, and with a free float uh, of 20%. So the question that, that we often face is, how do we justify localization in markets that one would say have shallow uh, liquidity pools. How do we reconcile the two? Do we need to be focusing on localization for the sake of it or should we incentivize liberal markets so that domestic participants can play but foreign participants can play as well? So I would like to get your perspective on that policy direction, Um, looking at it from where you are across the region, globally? Does it make sense for, from an Africa tech, but broadly also capital markets uh, perspective? And then related to that um, is the fact that technology um, tends um, to go ahead of regulation. And so in some contexts uh, in the continent, you find that technology is not regulated. Um, do you see that as a good thing for, for potential investors, or do you see that the absence of regulation could be a disincentive for for investors?
1: So Trudy, thank you for those. uh, You've certainly not set uh, an easy um, set of questions here, but but on the free float point, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, Uganda has a 20% minimum free float. We used to have 25%, we brought it down to 10%. That was not something that was done Uh, easily on our part because hand in hand with a reduction in free float goes the concern that we might have a situation where we have reduced liquidity. And so I think this was our decision to change the minimum free float rather than the optimal free float, which will always be the choice of the company and its advisors. And I think the companies that choose to come out with their minimum free float of 10% would probably tend to be companies that are uh, on the slightly larger end of our spectrum. And therefore the 10% free float is still adequate from a liquidity perspective or what asset managers deem as as adequate from a liquidity perspective. Now, why did we do this? A, was to actually attract more tech companies to our market and become more synchronized with uh, free float requirements or uh, market practice really in the US. Uh, Number two is our, uh, you know, vision and uh, belief that we want to be, London Stock Exchange for Technology Companies wants to be uh, the public avenue for Series B and Series C rounds. We actually want to encourage earlier stage technology companies to come to our market and hence we reduce that minimum free float. So that's a little bit of background on that. Moving on to your question around Uganda and Uganda as a proxy for other African companies, and how should they think about you know, technology listings and should technology IPOs um, you know, happen in, 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 uh, in international markets? Uh, should African technology come to markets like London or should actually they, they go to markets in, in the continent? I think, truly we're going to see a little bit of both. In certain situations, when um, the brand of that technology company, if it's a bit of a consumer internet brand, and not kind of just a B2B software type of brand, I can see it actually going going domestic, going local, because you can get the retail audience to back the story. You'll also get local institutional demand that would perhaps miss the story if if it just went to a London or a US exchange. So I think if it's a technology name that has a consumer internet story to it, absolutely, I, I think you're going to see local listings as well as international listings in this regard. We've seen this play out most recently in a Middle East uh, perspective where, you know, historically a lot of companies from um, the Middle East would actually go to international venues to list. And today we're seeing a bit of both. Of course, we see some companies come to international venues, but the local markets like Tadawul, ADX and DFM today are playing host to a lot of high growth companies as well. So uh, I think we will truly see 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 a bit of both. Also, what we might find initially is some of the, the larger companies perhaps go to the international venues and the more mid-cap names tend to list locally. One of the questions that uh, international investors often ask of a company from uh, Middle East, Africa or India is, well, where where is the local demand for this? Where is local market support for this story? And frankly, you know, if it lists locally, then that international investor is going to have to come in locally to invest. And frankly, that company has chosen to list locally because there was that local bid, that local support is very much evidence and and there. So so especially for some of those mid-cap stories, I think domestic listing very much could be the answer. On your last question around um, certain sectors within tech, perhaps not having regulation or or a regulatory framework around it, I think think technology is that one sector uh, where investors have seen a lot of companies um, come head to head with regulators, and a lot of companies have. I would say when when a uh, and you know it's it's very different when a giant in Europe or the U.S. goes up against the regulator. I think if it's a if it's a story where a certain company in Africa in Africa Tech is going head to head with a regulator, I would I would or, or against a regulator. I I can't see that being um you know leading to a a successful outcome. Uh, because I think even in Western markets we've seen that regulatory risk playing out uh, often um, not in the company's favor, but when it's simply not regulated, I think uh, you know investors will take quite a um, you know pro-risk and quite a um, you know aggressive view to um, to to regulation and um, and and back the story if if they like the the growth and they they back the management team there.
0: The question that I had, uh, Goku uh, looking forward to 2022, uh, can you paint a picture of what we should expect to see in terms of geographies within the continent, in terms of sectors, um, in terms of a pipeline? What does 2022 look like uh, for Africa Tech?
1: Uh, you know, the last couple of weeks, we've had the jitters in equity markets uh, uh, around Omicron virus. And, and just before this news you know there was already uh, you know uh, talk around perhaps central banks raising interest rates and cutting back on the fiscal stimulus and now we've had this uh, little resurg- resurgence around a variant and what does that mean uh Brent crude price has also reacted sharply uh but you know that's that's perhaps what's happening at the moment it's a december phenomenon where do i see um, global capital markets uh Global demand, global growth, fiscal stimulus, and and Africa at the, at the back of that uh, over twenty twenty two. I actually personally think that twenty twenty two. And I'm I'm an eternal optimist, so there is part of me that that doesn't see the downside sometimes, but uh, I think twenty twenty two will will continue to be a a strong equity capital market year. I I I think it will be um, in line with. Uh, Or around the 2021 levels of activity we've seen. I don't think the fiscal stimulus or increase in rates will be sharp or dramatic. I think most governments and central banks will be quite measured in the way that they will uh, taper that just so that they don't shock the market in any meaningful way. Brent crude uh today at, at about $70 a, a, a barrel, I think it will stay $70 to $85. Global growth, global demand, India, China, the US, I think will will continue to perform pretty favorably. From an Africa perspective, I think it's broadly speaking, three sectors we see, you know, heightened level of activity. Uh one is metals and mining, and that's always been a traditional sector that has been um very uh, Uh, issuance heavy out of Africa and and directed towards London. Two is financial services, you know, down the the theme of uh, financial inclusion in Africa. We're going to see more of that. And the third indeed is going to be African tech. I think the companies in technology from Africa that will first come to our market will tend to be the larger companies. And because of that lens you have to insert, it's going to be companies um, in the payments sector, in fintech, in consumer internet, and in uh, data and data provision. That doesn't mean to say that healthcare, um, agriculture, education, you know, the, the shared economy, etc. won't get a lot of capital flow into them. I just feel a lot of that will continue to be private capital flow, or, mm-hmm. you know, m um, uh, and uh, and less so. East pure ECM. It's just because those those sectors in technology in the continent need to to grow a little bit bigger before they will hit international venues. And thank okay. you truly uh, for a uh, for a, for a great series of uh, you know Q and A. Really enjoyed the dialogue here, um, and thank you for a, a, a very pleasant afternoon.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Goku. Uh, lots of content in there. Uh, lots of messages for. I think Africa tech players, entrepreneurs, uh, there's lots of opportunity for stock exchanges as well in the continent. Thank you so much for spending your time with me this afternoon. Pity we couldn't see each other in person, but uh, hopefully 2022, one of the predictions and highlights is we see each other in person. Thank you very much and stay well.
1: Thank you very much, Trudy. Thank you.